Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through the Lawyerist Lab and Accelerator. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. Hi, I'm Laura Briggs. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 302 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. In today's episode, Laura's talking with Alex Carter about changing our perspective on what we think negotiation is and how we can build healthier relationships through negotiation. Today's podcast is brought to you by Termageddon, Text Expander, Back Office Betty's, and LawPay. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So Stephanie, today I want to talk about something that came out of a, you know, regular meeting that we sort of have with some of our lawyerist lab members. You know, we do a monthly roundtable. We kind of ask everyone, what do you need help with? And kind of put everyone into different breakout rooms. This last week was really interesting. And I think it's well worth talking about in the spirit of keeping things real because we had all these different breakout rooms planned. And then everyone was like, oh, I want to go to the one on burnout. And so we had our remote work coach, Mary Ellen Stockton was there and she was leading the conversation around burnout. And I think it's just something that we've kind of brushed to the side with everything that's going on in the world, but it's very real right now how many people are exhausted, how many people are feeling physically and emotionally drained by the pandemic or having to shift your schedule every other day with kids being home or not home and everything that's going on in the world. It just feels a lot more palpable now. And there was kind of a common thread with so many people of just that feeling of being tired, burned out, overwhelmed. So I was wondering, do you have recommendations around what you do when you're feeling that way, especially when it seems like there may be no end in sight, particularly to the pandemic part? I feel a little lost in this one uh, myself, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, I, and I'm bummed that I actually wasn't part of this conversation when it happened last week. But I think for me, and I feel like in the last 10 days, a lot of people have really opened up to me in my personal and professional life. And this, so this conversation does keep bubbling up. And one of the things that has really helped for me was also hearing how many other people are struggling with it. Like we got word about, I don't know now, about two weeks ago that our fourth grader was failing like everything, including art. Like I don't even know how you fail <laughs> fourth grade art, but I was like, oh my God. And I was feeling like such a failure <laughs> on all fronts because of because she was at home doing virtual school. So I felt like this was on me that I have now allowed my fourth grader like she's going to be I mean, I know she's not going to be doomed in life, but all of a sudden, like in the last two weeks, all these people have been like, oh, my God, my kid's failing, too. Oh, my God, my kid's failing, too. And there was something really um, it was like a connection. And it was like, OK, I can just take a breath. This isn't my failure. This isn't my daughter's failure. This is just like the reality of life right now. And 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 it's just not really working. And there was something just hearing other people acknowledge that that just 
made me feel a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, one, you're not the only person who's feeling that way. And two, I don't think the way most people are feeling right now, there's nothing wrong with it or with you because we're in extenuating circumstances across the board. Like the word of 2020 has been pivot. And that's one thing that's fine to do in the short term, but this has been going on, you know, since March. And it's been so many changes that people have had to make. And I know for some people, like some of our attorneys shared that having to go to remote work and managing things from their home, they've actually ended up working more hours if they weren't really kind of mindful around it or cautious about the fact that now they're home. So it's easier to like do the work or just open the laptop and log in for a little while. And it also requires that constant juggling of, okay, how do we interact with clients now? And some days we might have kids home or not. And the kids are going through their own whole set of challenges too, trying to figure out like what school looks like. I mean, I still can't believe we have things like virtual kindergarten, which as a former teacher feels like a total nightmare, right? To be the teacher controlling that that Zoom it room. <laughs> it's a nightmare for everyone. Yeah. Like, we were saying like, my husband's like, I think we should just have, I mean, nobody would go for this, but we should just like have a do-over. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. we're like, We should just be able to do this again. It's not working. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, there's so many things that aren't working. And I think that's the important message from this is there's nothing wrong with you if you're feeling that way. If you're feeling tired, if you're just feeling like, man, I'm tired of shifting in this chaos and trying to figure out what does my normal day-to-day -day look like? What does my law firm look like? What does me practicing even look like anymore? Because there's so many factors that can change on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think just knowing that and being proactive about it and figuring out like, what can you do? You know, one of the things that we talked about in the round table was what are you doing to kind of combat against that? Knowing that we're in really weird circumstances and you're probably going to be more likely to feel stress, anxiety, you know, depression, any of these other things that can come up. How are you working towards being proactive with that. And I think some of the ideas, you know, we hear meditation a lot. One of the helpful things that came out of the round table is that doesn't mean 30 minutes. Maybe you can only do one minute to start with. And someone in the group said, I'm, I'm up to eight. That is all I can do. I can only fit in eight. I can only sit still for eight, but that eight minutes helps a little bit. Other people mention exercise and just doing fun things, even if it's virtual, because I think it's just, there's no way around it. It's really hard to kind of exist right now. And I think if you had anything that was a pressure point before the pandemic and all this insanity hit, it's only all the more exacerbated in your life. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking as you were given those great tips, you know, I so long for a vacation <laughs> and yeah. a tr and travel. And that used to be a great way to escape and get away from stress. And even yeah. that's limited right now. And I know we're going to try to take a little bit of a, a road trip vacation coming up over the holidays, but we have been doing more hiking and just going outside. And, you know, I know that temperature is different all over the country right now, but for a lot of places we're getting some nice fall weather and even just going outside and breathing fresh air is a good, good thing to do, especially when you're working from home and it's easy to be inside all day because you just get up and then you're where you need to be. You don't have to go anywhere. So don't forget to just even go outside and take breaths. Yeah, that's so important. I know here in Minnesota, the, the winters are really, really hard on me, knowing that I am going to be locked inside for six or seven months. And so trying to get creative with what you can do, both to get that 
exercise time, right? Because like, you know, a lot of us don't really feel comfortable going to the gym yet. Like I don't want to be on a treadmill wearing a face shield. That just feels weird. So what can you do? Like around here, the Mall of America opens at 6 a.m. to allow all the mall walkers to come in. So like maybe I can put on a mask and still be socially distanced enough and get some exercise even if the weather is terrible. So we definitely have to get a little more creative. I love the idea of hiking. You can still camp out, you know, um, but it's just hard, right? And there's not going to be an easy solution. I think a lot of the stuff that many of us turned to going to a movie theater to catch a movie on the weekends or like going out and going shopping, like those are not things that we can as easily do or that many people would feel safe doing right now. So we may have to continue to get creative. And of course, like the holidays are just going to look different this year. I don't know about you, but Halloween did not even feel like Halloween. It just blew by. (laughs) And I don't want to feel that way around Thanksgiving and some of the other holidays, right? (laughs) Yeah. Halloween, it was sweet. The neighbors that participated had like candy shoots and and tables, but it definitely was scaled back. And we normally get like 400 kids in our neighborhood, so we had no idea. So, of course, I let my husband buy the candy. And now we're dealing with all this leftover candy (laughs) that's just sitting here. We have... And we're trying not to eat it. And we we can't go anywhere to give it away, right? (laughs) So, we're like... I may just need to just suck it up and be like, it's okay to throw the candy away. So, those are silly things, but that's what we're struggling with right now. It's just like navigating normal and it's really hard and and it's not going to be over anytime soon. I think that's the other hard part of this is I'm starting to get my mindset that at least through probably next spring or summer, life's going to look a little different and that helps me at least start to cope and, and have a longer term plan. Yeah. I think that's so important. So recognize that we could be in this for at least several more months, if not a year. So there's nothing wrong with feeling like, oh, I have to keep pivoting and I have to keep recalibrating what normal looks like. But remember to take that time for yourself where you can rely on your support systems and acknowledge where talking to somebody else or elevating it to another level may be more helpful because there's nothing wrong with you that you're feeling you know, under pressure or stressed out or just totally exhausted with everything that's going on. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Hans and Donata from Termageddon and then my conversation with Alex. So we're here with Hans and Donata of Termageddon and they've got a, a nice little product here. And actually, if you guys will just kind of explain, um, what is it uh, that Termageddon does? Sure. Um, so everybody, hello. Uh, my name is Donata and I'm the president of Termageddon. I'm a licensed attorney. Uh, I've been practicing in the privacy and technology space for about five years. I'm the one that wrote all of the Termageddon policy questionnaires and all of the different texts and variations. I'm the chair of the International Association of Privacy Professionals, Chicago chapter, and the vice chair of the American Bar Association's e-privacy committee. My name is Hans. I'm the co-founder of Termageddon. I'm on the software side. Uh, Prior to uh, co-founding Termageddon with Donata, I ran a 12-person web design and software development shop in downtown Chicago. And for your question, uh, what is Termageddon? Uh, Termageddon is a website policies generator. And what's special about our technology is that after you generate a policy through our platform for one of your clients, you then get to reap the benefits of us monitoring privacy laws and then notifying you when policies of your clients need to be updated, why they need to be updated. And we even can push updates uh, to your client policies automatically uh, through your own dashboard. So 
this is something that attorneys can get for themselves and then also have for their clients, um, for, for their client websites, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the reasons why we started Termageddon is because I used to write privacy policies for my clients um, when I was a solo practitioner. And what I noticed is that when I was writing these policies, I was asking my customers very similar questions. And, you know, I had five or six templates they I used to add together to come up with a privacy policy. And it was very time consuming and monotonous um, and, to be honest, a little bit boring. So we figured out a way to automate it. So instead of spending your first two hours of drafting a privacy policy, you know, putting a bunch of templates together, you can answer a series of questions with Termageddon and we'll generate privacy policy for your client. At which point you review the privacy policy and make sure that it's it's good for your client and you can edit any of the text that you want to edit. And it essentially saves you just a whole lot of time and a whole lot of headache. And we also save you countless hours on uh, keeping track of different privacy law proposals. Um, so right now there's about 23 proposed privacy bills in the United States. And we track all of those for you. And if any of those are passed, um, we make sure that your client's policies stay updated and you don't have to spend all that time tracking and, and cobbling together templates. I think the main message here is that, you know, there's already several privacy laws in America that protect the information of residents of that particular state. We don't have a federal law. We have individual states that have implemented their own unique privacy laws. And it's very important to understand that these privacy laws do not protect businesses. Uh, they protect people who are submitting their personal information. So if your website has a contact form, that means you're collecting name, email, phone number. Those are all examples of personally identifiable information. And based on other factors that may require you to comply with one law or another, you may be required by law to make specific disclosures on the information you collect, how you process that data, who you share that data with. And so, and quite a few more disclosures as well. Yeah, and essentially the way the process works is when you're creating a privacy policy, the first set of questions will be used to determine what privacy laws apply to that particular client and their website. And then based on what laws apply, we'll ask different series of questions to make sure that all of those disclosures are in place. And for law firms, we're actually offering a free license for your own law firm's website. So you can test out the product and make sure that the work product is good. Because as a lawyer myself, I would obviously never use a software for my clients without testing it out first. Um, so you get a free license and that's free forever. Um, and then you can determine whether or not it's a good solution for your clients. I think that's a great way to have an introduction into it. So the, the question that I would have uh, as an attorney is, how difficult is it to make these updates? If we're putting these onto our websites, onto our clients' websites, what what is the way in which we, uh, I guess, kind of approach that? How do I get to the updates? Yeah, so um, let's talk about what you would do without Termageddon. Um, so you would create your Word document or your PDF. You would send it over to your client's website designer. Um, and then every time you update that policy, you would have to send them an updated document. They would go into the website again, probably charging your client for their time as well. And then you would have to coordinate with a website designer to make sure that they put those documents up on that policy page. With Termageddon, when you create a policy, you actually get something that's called an embed code. And that embed code is what is placed on your client's privacy policy page. And that embed code displays that particular policy. 
So when a new law passes, so for example, California passes the California Privacy Rights Act. We don't know yet, but they probably will. <laughs> um, so when a new law is passed, all you have to do is you go into your Termageddon dashboard, you accept and review our suggested text for this new law for your clients, you click save, and then your client's policy on their website is automatically updated without you having to contact anybody else. So just to put this in perspective, as a lawyer, you would have one dashboard. You would be able to see all of the clients whose policies you manage. You'd be notified when there's new updates, meaning you can then invoice or notify them that you should be charging for your time to review whatever it is, New York's new privacy bill, uh, where citizens can sue businesses for having a contact form. So those notifications and, and notices is what enables law firms to stay high level alert on whose client policies need to be updated and when and why, and then giving you the ability to just push the updates right to the policies and invoice accordingly. Great. That seems simple enough. And I, I think that's something that, uh, you know, attorneys could certainly use. So they they get to this and, and can kind of see a preview and, and start using this by going to termageddon.com, scrolling all the way down to the bottom of the page and going to the law firm's partner page. And that'll take them to sign up with you guys. They'll get free um, terms and conditions, or, or I'm sorry, they'll get free um, privacy policies for their own website and then be able to um, get these for their, their own clients as well. They'll actually receive a license for free. Um, so that includes a set of policies. So we'll include a privacy policy, terms of service, and disclaimer. And all attorneys uh, should be taking advantage of a free disclaimer generator because disclaimers on attorney websites need to specifically state whether you know that information should be perceived as legal advice or not, which I'm guessing most attorneys don't want their website to be considered providing legal advice. So the disclaimer is one of three policies that I think law firms would appreciate. Great. Great. All right. Well, again, that's termageddon.com and scroll all the way down to the bottom and uh, you'll see the the link down there. Thank you guys. Thanks for, for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you. So Thank you. Us. Hi, I'm Alex Carter. I'm a professor at Columbia Law School where I teach mediation and I'm the author of Ask for More, 10 Questions to Negotiate Anything. And we have so many good things to dive into around the topic of negotiation. But first, I want to hear a little bit more about your experience working in mediation. I think that's just so relevant to a lot of our audience. And sometimes it doesn't always come up in a legal practice or it's not an arm of the legal profession that every attorney necessarily explores. You know, Laura, that's so true. And do you know that I didn't even know what mediation was or that it existed until my 3L year of law school? And going into that year, a friend of mine at Columbia Law School, where I studied also as a student, said, hey, Alex, you know, there's this class I just took. I think you'd be great at it. Involves a lot of talking. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll take this class, right? Isn't this amazing, Laura, how we end up as lawyers in our careers? You know, it's just, it's the word of a friend. And when I mediated my first case as a student and sat down in front of people in this, you know, dingy jury room in a New York City civil court, I had a moment where I thought, this is it this is what I should be doing for the rest of my life. And I hadn't known that it existed. So from that moment forward, I tried to figure out a way that 
I could get to ADR, alternative dispute resolution practice. I went to a large firm, Cravath, as a, as a litigator. And from there, I was advising clients on going to mediation. And so when the job came up at Columbia for me to teach the course that I took as a student, <laughs> of course, I couldn't turn that down. And here I am now uh, doing what I love to do every day. Wow, it's almost like it's come full circle from you just deciding to take that class and now you're one of the experts on these kinds of topics. That's always so interesting, the roads you go down and where it takes you. Right, absolutely. So I'm excited to chat a little bit about from your perspective, what is like the heart of negotiation? I mean, I'm sure you've seen it as a litigator. I'm sure you've seen quite a lot of it as a practicing mediator. What are the things that kind of people are coming into this concept of negotiation doing wrong, right? Like people show up and they have these expectations and it's not the expectations that will help them be successful in mediation. What would you say those things are? Oh, I love this question, Laura. Okay. So like a lot of people, I'm wondering how many people listening to this podcast right now were taught that same tired old definition of negotiation that I was as a law student, that negotiation is a back and forth between two or more people over money, right? So negotiation is that thing you do right before you have a client sign a retainer agreement or before you sign an M&A deal. Or unfortunately, you know, as a mediator, right, I see people who are in litigation and they have to figure out a way to settle out of it. And that's what I thought it was. You know, and then over time, as I became a dispute resolution teacher, I started to see that negotiation was so much more than that. But Laura, it wasn't until I went to Hawaii on my honeymoon, okay? <laughs> okay? And I'm sitting in a kayak with my husband, I swear, true story, sitting in a kayak with my husband on the Wailua River, and the guide in front of us turns around and says, please negotiate your kayaks to the left so we can wind up on that beach up ahead. And that was the moment, Laura, that I remembered there's more than one way to think about negotiation. And when you're negotiating a kayak toward a beach, what are you doing? You're steering. Mm, yeah. And I started in that moment to think about negotiation as not just the money conversations, but any conversation in which I am steering a relationship. So if I'm a lawyer, what does that mean? It means before clients are even in touch with me, when I'm speaking at conferences, when I'm describing my work, how am I steering those relationships with potential clients? And then long before we sign the retainer and long after, how am I piloting that relationship for my client's best and for my best as well? And when you think of negotiation as steering relationships, it's really empowering. You realize, you know, and for people who are in slightly larger firms, even your relationships with your coworkers, your practice heads, your managing partners, all of that, the way you steer your career, also negotiation. I love that. And I think that this kind of analogy comes up so much in your work. And I found it to be really helpful for really pulling you out of the traditional concept of what negotiation is and thinking about it with a whole new frame around it. One of the things that really stuck out to me is 
when we're heading into something that we traditionally think of as negotiation, we are often thinking about, well, who's going to speak first in this conversation? How do I power position myself, right? And you're arguing that one of the most important things you can do is actually think about the questions we ask ourselves before we are even in that moment, walking into that room, starting that conversation. What are some of those questions? Yes. And if I could speak to this just for a second, Laura, you know, if you think about negotiation as steering, what is the most important relationship of your life? It's the one you have with yourself. And that, Laura, right, people not steering that internal conversation was the mistake I saw most people making, no matter how educated, no matter how long they had been practicing law, they didn't know the right way to prepare before they got in the room. And that preparation is asking yourself the right questions. So let's talk about maybe one of those questions. The first place, this is so classic. People ask me, Alex, where do I start You know, the, the negotiation? And a lot of people, Laura, will come into my office You know, when I'm working as a mediator, lawyers, and say, all right, I'm here. How are we going to fix this? And my first question is, fix what? The first question you have to ask yourself is, what is the problem I am trying to solve? And by the way, you know, as a lawyer, if I'm representing my client, I'm thinking of this on two dimensions, Laura. I'm thinking about perhaps what is the objective that I have as a lawyer here, but even more than that, I'm thinking about what's the problem for my client that I am trying to solve? And sometimes, you know, when people get confused in their negotiation strategy, it's because they haven't defined the right problem. You know, people get in and they think, well, you know, our move is to try to dominate the atmosphere in the room, right, to, to position myself with power. Here's the thing. What's the problem? If the problem you're trying to solve is that your client is concerned about reputation, then maybe blowing up the mediation is not such a good idea, right? Maybe you want a private settlement process where that client is going to be able to preserve their reputation, preserve their financial well-being, and get out of the case. So everything comes from defining the right problem to solve. And I imagine that it's probably really important exactly how you do that, right? Because most of us start knowing what the problem is. You know, my employees are not engaged, but framing it in that negative way or something like that makes it really hard to figure out, okay, well then what does success look like if we can define that one of the issues here is that employees are not engaged? How do you walk through going from that initial thought point of, okay, something has got to change, I've got to gather this additional information to really define what my problem is, to getting to a statement that's useful? Are there like factors that we should have in mind when creating that statement? Absolutely. So glad you asked this. Okay. So, so often, Laura, people define a problem in exactly that way. They'll say, my employees are not engaged. Okay, maybe they got back a survey that wasn't great from their employees or somebody made a remark. And so they've reactively and narrowly defined that problem. So what I tell people to do is I say, okay, take that problem. It's negative and it's backward looking. And I want you to uh, turn it into something that is forward looking and positive, right? Like, I need my employees, right, to be fully engaged and excited about their work, okay? So already you've taken a complaint 
right? And you've recast what you do want. Always a better negotiation strategy, by the way, Laura. Don't go in saying what you don't want. Go in saying what you do want, right? Okay, so now you've done that. I then tell people to take another step. I say, change that statement into a question, right? Starting with what or how. So here it would be, how can I get my employees to a place where they are engaged and excited about their work? Do you see what we did there? We changed the statement into a call to action that's going to move us forward. And then I have one final step, okay? I want you to look at that question. What would happen if my employees were engaged and excited? And ask you, what would happen if you achieved that? Because Laura, I want people to zoom out and look at the larger picture. What does employee engagement get you? And maybe your answer is, it doubles our revenue and our impact over the next five years. Then you revise your statement, right? How can I get my employees excited and engaged so that we can double our impact and our revenue in the next five years. In other words, it connects it to a larger picture. And this is so useful even for everyday things. You know, if you think, you know, right now I'm negotiating because we have a renovation we need to do on our bathroom in the house, right? If I think about, well, I need to save money on this bathroom, for what? What's the problem I'm trying to solve? Maybe I'm trying to put more into my 401k, right? Maybe that leaves more money for tutoring support for my daughter. In this way, I want people to place this one problem in a larger context so that they can be strategic in solving the bigger problem that's out there for them. It sounds like you might get more stakeholder buy-in in reframing it in that new way too, because I know sometimes, especially if you're collaborating as part of a team, if you use that example of like, our employees are not engaged, there's almost a sense of like blame. Even if no one's calling somebody out, it's mm -hmm. almost like we've done really poorly at this and it hasn't worked to this point. So we're trying to address it now. And I think it kind of doesn't really get you the right motivation around fixing the thing. So I love this idea of connecting it to how do we do it? And then why is that important? Because it kind of removes all of that negative tension from the process and gets everybody a little bit more excited about being on board with it. That is such a good point. You know, and Laura, I think a lot of times in law school, we do most of our studying by ourselves and we think that law is a solo sport. And in fact, it's really not. You know, we rely on coworkers and our networks for everything we do as lawyers. And so when you go in with that negative frame, it's simultaneously blaming and unhelpful right. because you haven't told people what you need them to do. Right. I love that. That's such a helpful tip. We'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about how you approach the negotiation process. Get it right every time. Text Expander makes it easy to give your team the right words for every situation. Whether you need to keep legal happy or delight customers with effective answers, you can rest easy knowing your team has it covered. The latest version of Text Expander even has new and improved statistics reporting for organizations, including the ability to build reports with customizable date ranges for enterprise and individuals, so you can track how much time your team saves. 
With Text Expander, you can keep your team consistent, accurate, and current, work faster and smarter, keep the whole team communicating efficiently and with consistent language, and share your snippets of messaging, signatures, and descriptions with everyone who works on projects with you. Text Expander is available on Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. And Lawyerist podcast listeners get 20% off their first year by visiting textexpander.com podcast to learn more. Support for today's episode comes from Back Office Betty's, the only virtual receptionist service exclusively dedicated to small law firms that offers a plan with unlimited calls. Their highly specialized service boasts customized call handling, relentlessly friendly team members, and unmatched quality. The Bettys are ready to help you grow your firm, even when you're out of the office. Visit backofficebettys.com lawyerist to try them out for one week free. Use the promo code PODCAST to receive $150 off your first month. Trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, LawPay, as the ability to accept payments online becomes an increasingly essential part of your practice, LawPay provides your firm with a proven and trusted solution. With LawPay, you receive a simple, secure way to accept client credit cards and e-check payments from anywhere. LawPay understands the unique compliance requirements placed on attorneys, which is why their solution was developed specifically to correctly separate earned and unearned fees and protect IOLTA accounts from any third-party debiting, giving you peace of mind that your transactions are always handled correctly. To learn more or to get started, visit lawpay.com lawyerist today. Okay, welcome back. So what I want to think about now is this idea of I'm asking myself some important questions before I go into a negotiation, right? And you call these your mirror questions. So um, can you give a little bit of an example about how you walk yourself through this process of getting ready to negotiate something with another person? Yeah, absolutely. So in the book, Ask for More, there are 10 questions. Five of them, the first five, are what I call the mirror Right. This is where we take a look in the metaphorical mirror. You don't have to do it while actually looking at yourself. And we're getting a sense of the problem we're looking to solve, what our needs are, dealing with our emotions, you know, and crafting our steps forward. And I have to tell you, Laura, you know, I think in times of crisis, especially lawyers occasionally give me this look. And the look is like, really, Alex, you think I have time to do this? <laughs> And it's incredible, Laura. I took a group of media lawyers through this exercise and the number of stunned looks on their faces at the end of it, one executive raised his hand and said, first of all, I can't believe this took 15 minutes. And second of all, I can't believe how much time this is going to save me on the back end. You have to spend a little bit of time to save a lot of time. It gets you the clarity you need because, you know, Laura, let's just say this. I think negotiation is that thing that a lot of us pretend we feel great about, right? Or <laughs> pretend we've been trained to do. Yeah. But the truth is that even still, it's not mandatory at law school and a lot of people don't take it. And maybe even you haven't grown up in a house, you know, where you had parents of privilege who taught you how to negotiate from the dining room table. So we have a lot of really bright, educated lawyers out there who don't know an approachable way to negotiate. The fact is, if you've ever wondered, what's my source of power in negotiation? It is not bluster. It is not aggression. It is knowledge. 
There's actually been research to prove that the best leaders and negotiators are the people who ask themselves the right questions. And these days, Laura, I can run through those five mirror questions in 15 minutes. That's amazing because I think where a lot of us go wrong is like you said, we do the blustering or we have this vision of what negotiation looks like. And so you head into the conversation and you're like, okay, these are the verbal cues I need to give. These are the nonverbal cues I need to give. And then we only ask those questions about ourselves afterwards, right? You go in for the salary negotiation Mm -hmm. and it doesn't go your way. You go in to ask for a more flexible work schedule and it doesn't go the way you intended. And then after the fact, you're going, what went wrong? What, you know, you're asking those things about your own role, but you didn't maybe ask it at the beginning of how you can set yourself up for success. You're only analyzing it after the fact and in a negative way, then it's like, well, I, I messed up. I didn't get what I wanted. Mm -hmm. Can I, can I talk to this point for a minute? This is Laura, we could go for so long already. I'm telling, I'm so enjoying this conversation. Okay. So let's talk about the, the negative, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking question. Okay. I actually find your question that you just posed, you know, what went wrong is much more productive than what most people ask. Do you know what most people ask? They ask why. Oh, yeah. Why couldn't I do this? Why couldn't I make my points? Why didn't I seize my opportunity? And I want to take this moment right now to ask people to remove why from the list of questions that you ask yourself and the list of questions that you ask other people. Do you know why? Why don't I like why? Because why has been proven to put people on the defensive, including yourself. Mm. It is a blaming question, and it's a question that keeps you stuck in the past and stuck in inaction. And so instead of looking at a negative experience and saying, why couldn't I do this? I want you to change it to what and say, what support do I need, right? To do this better next time. Do you see the difference in that, right? When we move from why to what, We move from blame to diagnosis. We move from the past to the future. And it's a note also for your lawyers out there who are working with colleagues, if you need to have a challenging conversation of any kind, eliminating why is going to greatly increase your results. Instead of going in to a junior associate and saying, why did you do that, right? You could say, you know, what went into your decision or walk me through the process you can see already how the latter questions really open it up so that you're actually going to get the information you need instead of a bunch of defensiveness and justification. Oh, that's so powerful. Like it seems like it's so subtle, but I can just think about how if we've made that one simple switch in your day-to-day life, how many conversations might go differently just because of the way that it's framed. Because you're right, it puts people in a different frame of mind when it's being asked as why it automatically implies You did something wrong, and I'm really trying to understand what's wrong with you that you went that direction, and it's just, that never leads to a productive conversation, so that's really helpful. So how do we think about the other side's perspective, right? Like, now that we know a little bit more about how to frame it, what do I need to know about the other person in the negotiation before I'm in that room or while I'm in that conversation? What what details do I need to gather or what questions do I need to ask around that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So to the extent you know the person that you're negotiating with before you get in the room, I think it's useful to think about their style. You know, how do they negotiate? So, you know, I spoke to one junior partner who needed to, you know, negotiate with the managing partner of the firm. And the first managing partner she dealt with was a really competitive negotiator. So anytime she went in to, to you know, try to negotiate, she had to take her proposal, jack it up by about 25%, <laughs> right? And add some other stuff that she really didn't want, okay? And then she would go in there and inevitably, you know, he would say, Pamela, I just can't do this. I got to take 25% off this. And then she would act upset and say, oh, okay, fine. And, um, and she gave him the win. The managing partner then gets replaced by a woman who really seems to be a trust-based negotiator. This time, the junior partner goes in and she says, here's the real number. Here's the research I did. I don't want to waste your time. I just want to show you what I think is reasonable and where we should be. And the managing partner said, thank you. That's great. I appreciate you not wasting my time, right? So you really want to think about what you know about the other person. But regardless, once you get in the room, I think this is where, you know, you said people said, oh, we should speak first. It's actually not the way to be most persuasive. Do you know there was a study done out of the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern that showed 93% of people are not asking the right kinds of questions to get the most out of their negotiations. And I'm not just talking about the most trust, I'm talking about the most money. And so what you really should do is front load your conversation with questions. And my favorite question, this is actually a trick, Laura, because it's not really a question at all, is tell me. Mm. Tell me your goals. Tell me your perspective. Um, tell me what's brought us to this point today. What you really want is to get people talking and to say as much as possible. And here's the thing, you'll be in a better position to listen because you will have done all of your prep in advance. When you've done all of your prep in advance, you'll have much less of that mental chatter that prevents you from listening. So tell me is the question that I advise everybody, whether it's big firm lawyers, you know, solo lawyers, whether it's people who are in-house running a large department, or frankly, I speak to doctors, business executives, I've spoken to orthodontists, everybody should start with tell me because it's the broadest possible question you can ask and it gets people talking, which is what you want. Because when you have more information, you're gonna figure out the right way to craft that deal. Oh, that's incredible. So that automatically makes me think, well, what do you do if you enter a negotiation and someone uses these questions and strategies before you do? How do you respond in that situation when this other person is just as skilled in this type of process as you are? Yeah, great question, right? So again, part of your preparation is going to be, right, getting all the information out on the table that you want to share and really thinking about your goals. You know, in the end, Laura, I believe that more information is a good thing. And so if somebody is getting information from you and they start by saying, Laura, tell me your thoughts here today, right? 
that gives you a chance to speak. And then you can turn to them and say, I'm about to ask you the same question, <laughs> right. right? And you know that reciprocity is a real dynamic in negotiation. If somebody does something for us, we're more likely to respond in kind. And so, in fact, if you respond to the first question, it puts you in a position where then they are more likely to respond to yours. Oh, I love this. There's so many good takeaways from this episode, and there's a lot more in your book, which we'll share the link to that in the show notes. Where can people go to learn more about some of the work you're doing? Absolutely. So I'd love it if people would find me on my website, which is alexcarterasksasks.com. I am also on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. That's where I put my family pictures too. <laughs> and I'm very reluctantly on Twitter. <laughs> Same on Twitter. All right. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks. Really enjoyed it. Take care. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced by Bailey Tiller and edited by Christopher Eng. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read The Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com community lab to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by their participants are their own and not endorsed by the Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.